Well, welcome. It's a couple of minutes after 11, so we'll get started here. I am uh, Peter Payne. I actually live here in Mount Hermon. Uh, I, I volunteer, I'll do volunteer things with Mount Hermon, but I also do seminars during the summertime. And my training is in philosophy. I got a PhD in philosophy, and I love hard questions. My wife and I go every year to Europe by invitation from Christian groups there to give talks, outreach lectures, sometimes debates with atheists, a variety of things. Obviously, there's a break during COVID. In 2020, we were there for three weeks out of a 10-week trip and everything shut down. <laughs> uh, this year, it wasn't sure whether we'd be able to make it, but the beginning of February, things improved, and we were able to make a five-week trip, not only a 10-week trip. So we just love our times over there, love interacting with students and with skeptics. Both the talk today and tomorrow are talks that I think are very helpful for non-Christians. Uh, today, the, today's talk is addressing a major objection people have to the faith, why they don't take the faith seriously. The one tomorrow is more of a mo motivational bridge. Uh, most atheists I know do have strong ethical convictions about some things, uh, but how do they ground those as an atheist, as a materialist? So the topic tomorrow is more motivationally inclined. I think probably the biggest reason why you see more and more people leaving the church, uh, turning away from the faith, is they become convinced that we live in a purely natural world, purely physical world. Look around us, uh, science is able to explain everything. Even if they grew up in a strong Christian home and enjoy the church, they go off to college and start thinking, uh, there really is no supernatural. That's just all mythology, none of it's true. So what I'm going to be arguing today is that science, the success of science, actually does not give us any good reason for thinking that miracles do not happen. And in thinking about this topic, I, I, I thought of two expressions, order of nature miracles versus specific point miracles, and they probably will not be familiar to you because I made them up. Uh, but I think if you understand the, what these terms refer to, uh, and can hold on to that, and you can remember these titles and then connect with the points involved, it'll give a good foundation for being able to see how science and the Christian faith actually are not in conflict with, with each other. Now, sometimes when the topic of science and Christianity arises, people think of evolution, creation, that whole debate. I won't be addressing that because I think most people leave the faith not because of Genesis 1 and 2 and interpretations of Genesis 1 and 2, but because they think the idea of God, period, doesn't make sense. That there is nothing supernatural. So if you want in the q and I can come back to the question of evolution uh, versus creation. Uh, but I'm not going to be really addressing that in my talk. Miracles in both categories, order of nature miracles and specific point miracles, I'm using in the strong sense. And I think it's perfectly appropriate to talk about miracles as, uh, as a miracle I found you today. <laughs> or a miracle, I found this lost thing I was looking for. Well, God can be at work in lots and lots of ways in our lives, and we can say it's a miracle that God did it, but I'm using miracle in the strong sense that's actually an exception to the laws of nature as we know them. I wanna start off with a story about Pierre Laplace. He was a French mathematician, physicist. Interesting enough, he was a tutor of Napoleon. So it goes back to Aristotle was a tutor of Alexander the Great, who became this world conqueror. <laughs> we have a similar kind of situation in this, this brilliant mind, Pierre Laplace, was a tutor for Napoleon. Pierre Laplace wrote a book on the solar system, Exposition of the World System, he entitled it. 
And Napoleon, the story has it, Napoleon came to Laplace and asked, why did you make no mention of God in your book on the solar system? And Laplace's response to it was, I have no need of that hypothesis. Physics is able to count for things in the solar system. There's no need to bring God into the picture. Well, you move beyond Laplace, and science has expanded enormously since then, accounted for lots and lots of things. So it seems as though anything we, almost anywhere we look in the world around us, no matter where you're looking, whether you're looking at human brain, uh, biology, the world around us, the cosmos, it seems though science is able to give scientific laws, natural laws, to explain the kinds of things which are happening. So it's, uh, you could have a person saying, we have no need of that hypothesis, namely the God hypothesis. No matter where you look, whether the solar system or anywhere, there's no need for that hypothesis. In fact, the success of science has squeezed, God, squeezed out belief in God, or at least in a God of miracles. Sometimes you also have people say, before the rise of science, people invoke God and spirits to explain why things happen. But the light of science has dispelled such ignorance. Gotten rid of this, this, this supernatural stuff. Interesting enough, when you look at the faith of Jews and of Christians, it's not based on our, our not understanding how the natural world works and invoking God to explain how, the, how, how, how nature works, why it rains, why the, sun, why the sun shines, all that kind of thing. Rather, faith in God in both the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and in the New Testament, uh, faith in God is based on God's working within history and is speaking through prophets. So it's not a matter of invoking God to explain the natural order that we see around us. The conflict thesis fails to distinguish, I would argue, between order of nature miracles and specific point miracles. Now I need to now explain what I mean by these two. Order of nature miracles are exceptions to the laws of physics that God must perform to sustain the observed order of nature. And I'll give a couple examples of that. The first one is Isaac Newton thought that God every once in a while needed to adjust the orbits of the planets to keep them stable. The reason he thought that was he recognized that there'd be a gravitational attraction of planets on each other, and he thought that could destabilize the orbits. So God every once in a while needs to come along and sort of straighten things out to keep them stable. If God needs to do that, that would be an order of nature miracle, something God needs to do to sustain the order that we see around us. Another example is cellular differentiation, sort of a fancy term for when cells divide, why do they sometimes become different cells from the parent cell? So life starts off with a bunch of stem cells, you get a bunch of stem cells, but at some point a stem cell will divide and become two nerve cells or two muscle cells. Or you might have a nerve cell which divide, divide and where the offspring cells are different from the parent cell. Now it's crucial that as a human being or any animal is growing, the cells differentiate the right place at the right time. Now how does this happen? How do they know when, to, when, when, to, when the genes need to be turned on or turned off because that's what makes cells become different than what they were before? And it's not just a matter of having enough cells that are there. Within the human brain, there are about half a trillion neurons in an adult human brain, huge number of neurons. But it's not enough that you've got a large number of neurons out there, you have to have the right kinds of neurons in the right places. So some neurons have these long axons, they're called, and basically your brain gets wired by having the right kind of nerves in the right kind of places. 
So how does this take place? I remember one time hearing a preacher say, science is unable to account for cellular differentiation. Well, when I think about what science has been able to account for in terms of cells, it's been able to account for a lot. We know it's the DNA structure. We know that they basically unzip when they, when they, when they uh, copy themselves. And then you get another set of uh, the, the nucleic acids to line up with, with, the, with each strand. And you get two new strands, and they form two new cells. So we know a lot about it. We're actually beginning to know a little bit about why cells differentiate as they do. They are influenced by the things around them. If you have a tumor removed, there's going to be a gap, and actually the lack of cells around it could sometimes cause cells to mutate. <laughs> but we, so it's still a big question. But if, in fact, God needed to switch on genes every time cells differentiated, that would be a huge miracle. I mean, after all, just think of the countless cases of God switching on genes in every living organism to have the cells differentiate become exactly the right thing at the right, right time. That would be an order of nature miracle. Now, you notice in both of these cases, I haven't given you an example of an order of nature miracle that I actually believe is correct. Because I'm inclined to think that God has created an exquisitely ordered world where he doesn't need to do miracles to sustain the order of nature around us. Think of, uh, there's a little cartoon, I used to have a t-shirt that had this, this cartoon on it, Sidney Harris, uh, there's this blackboard that has some equations on one side and the other side, and the middle says, then a miracle occurs. <laughs> and one scientist says, I think you should be, uh, be, be more explicit here in step two. <laughs> well, order of nature miracles where God needs to do some miracle to keep it running right. So you have a human being developing in the, in the, in the womb of a mother, and God every once in a while filling these gaps so that it all gets filled in because natural processes aren't able to do it by themselves. Specific point miracles, however, are exceptions to the laws of physics that God performs at specific times not to sustain the, uh, the observed order of nature, but for other purposes. Okay, now let's come back to what, what, is, what, what does success, the success of science actually tell us? Does it tell us that specific point miracles don't happen, or does it address to the question of order of nature miracles? I think that it suggests that there may not be any order of nature miracles. The success of science suggests that when we look around the world around us, there aren't gaps where God needs to do a miracle to hold together, and God do a miracle here to adjust it, sort of spinning the tops to keep them stable, like the plates that are spinning, God's not going around and spinning the plates so that the world is functioning in the right kind of way. That's what the success of science tells us. But sometimes people have the idea, well, if science is able to explain everything we see around us in terms of how it normally functions, that, well, God must not be involved at all. But they raise the question, well, why should we assume that God would create a world where he needs to leave these gaps and he has to do miracles to fill them in? All of the recorded miracles in the Bible are specific point miracles. Now, some of them is not clear whether it's an exception to the laws of physics or not, but when you look at the things God did miraculously in Scripture, they're all specific point miracles, even when God brings a drought. Now, we don't know whether God is just orchestrating, I mean, whether, you know, what, what, what lies behind it. So there may not be an exception to the laws of physics when God says there's going to be a, a seven-year drought, or when he tells uh, Elijah, go up on the hill, hilltop, and you see any clouds, so the end of the drought. No, I don't see any clouds. Go up and look again. Ha, some clouds. The clouds build, the storm comes, the end of the drought. Now, what's going on there? God's obviously at work. Is God making exceptional laws of physics there? Maybe yes, maybe no. 
But if God is making an exception to laws of physics, it's a, specific, it's a specific point miracle and not an order of nature miracle. Nothing in Scripture says every time it rains is because God is causing it to rain. Biblical teaching arguably accords quite well with there being no order of nature miracles. Now, I say arguably because the biblical writers didn't have this notion of miracles that I'm using. It didn't have the same kind of concept that we have of uh, laws of nature. And you have statements like in Deuteronomy 11, 40, 30, 44, he, God, will give the rain for your land in a season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. Now, what was the biblical author thinking when he wrote this? Uh, he didn't understand sort of the natural processes. He says, God is bringing the early rain and God is bringing the later rain. One could interpret that by saying every time it rains, it's because God is making it rain. But actually, the text simply says God is providing this for it and not saying how God provides it for us. So the biblical authors don't have this distinction, which I have. But I would say, arguably, there's nothing in Scripture that says God makes gaps or fills in gaps to make the order of nature work as it does. Now, a key thesis in my talk this morning is that biblical theology accords well with God having created an exquisitely ordered world, one where at no point does God need to perform order of nature miracles to sustain the order we live in. Okay, first point about the biblical view of creation. What does the Bible say about the created world as God created it? First of all, it's not pantheistic. Pantheism says that the world is part of God. God is the world, or the world is the body of God, okay? That is not the world which God's created. God's created a world which is not God. It's distinct from God. It's not a part of God or a part of God's body. It's also not animistic. In animism, there's a spirit of the river, a spirit in the tree, a spirit in the mountains, the spirit in the clouds. Uh, so you have spirits that are making everything move. When God created this world, he isn't creating spirits here, spirits there, spirits there to make everything work. There are spiritual beings, yes, angels and demons, but they're not sort of the spirit of the clouds, the spirit of the trees, etc. So it's not an assembly of spirits when God created the world. Also, God didn't create lesser gods overseeing natural events, a god of thunder or a god of the sun. Now, clearly people worship the sun, and sometimes they worship, you know, thunder was the, the god of thunder, the god of the clouds. But God did not create a world where, these, where these, these lesser gods are making everything run. Rather, God's creation has an intrinsic order. And you can even see it in, the, in Genesis, the language which is used. Let the earth sprout vegetation. God has created a world within which the earth can sprout vegetation. Uh, they let the waters swarm. So God has created the sea and things in the sea and said, let, the, let them multiply, let them swarm. And then he says, let them, humans, have dominion. So he's given us powers within ourselves to actually influence the, the world. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. So God has created a world within which there's powers within this world which God has created, which manifest themselves. In fact, our ability to rebel against God and not to obey God is because God has given us an intrinsic power within ourselves to choose to do right or to do wrong. A second point is that according to biblical theology, God's all-powerful and all-knowing. Now, being all-powerful, that means God can create any possible world. It seems like to me. 
Okay, also all-knowing means that God knows all the possibilities. Now let's think about Isaac Newton again, his example. God has two options. One, he can create a world where he needs to adjust the orbits every once in a while to keep them stable. Seems like that's a possible world. So God create, could have created a world like that. But we also know a possible world is one where physics actually dictates the orbits of the planets. Uh, Pierre Laplace, actually, in his book on the solar system, showed that although the planets have an effect upon each other, over time, those effects cancel each other out. So the Earth actually does vary in its orbit around the sun with a narrow band. In fact, it's technically a chaotic system because it's very difficult to predict where it's going to be because there are so many factors which influence it. But nonetheless, physics accounts for the stability and it stays within that band. So we can ask the question, well, what would God choose? Now, typically ask the question, what would God choose, is a problematic question on our part. Because we are not God. God is God. And we say, well, what would I do if I were God? Well, sometimes we can get a correct answer that way, but oftentimes we don't get a correct answer that way. But nonetheless, from a human perspective, suppose you're an engineer and you're building a machine, and you have two options. One, you can build a machine where it needs to be, say, adjusted annually. You know, build a car. The car, you need to take it in periodically get a tune-up so it's running smoothly. Or suppose the engineer is able to create this machine so it's self-adjusting. Now, which option would the engineer choose? Now, monetary considerations aside, it seems that an engineer would choose the self-adjusting machine. It's a much more elegant solution. Well, God knows he can create a world where he doesn't need to adjust the orbits of the planet. He could build it into the physics of the world he's made. Uh, it'd be strange to me to say, well, surely God, God must be uh, adjusting uh, or the orbits uh, because, after all, why not? So it's, from our perspective, it seems as though God will create a world that's highly ordered. So sometimes people think of God as the great engineer or the great mathematician who's created this world and created the order we see around us. So actually, when you think about the character of God, God has the power and the knowledge to be able to create an exquisitely ordered world. And we shouldn't be surprised that if God were to do that. I mean, after all, that's the kind of world we would create if we have the engineering skills to be able to do it. Uh, so God knows he can create an order of nature with no need to fill gaps. That's the world we live in, basically. And the Bible doesn't tell us that God chose to do this. So this is Peter Payne engaged in some speculation here. I'm not quoting from scripture when I say this. So the Bible doesn't tell us that God chose to do this, but it accords with both the biblical teaching about creation and God's power and knowledge. So it seems to me I'm not, as a Christian, looking at the order of nature around us, not seeing any gaps there, and I'm scrambling to try to come up with some explanation. Whereas, clearly, surely, if God exists, then you have to find God filling in gaps. But that doesn't seem to me to be the case, and actually, in terms of what the Bible says about God, it shouldn't be too surprising that God has created such a world. I'm going to insert here something which a friend of mine was emailing about. He saw my PowerPoint. And he said, you didn't say anything about apparent fine-tuning. There's a lot more to Christians and science rather than simply science doesn't exclude the possibility of miracles. There are things within the world around us that actually point towards a designer. Stephen Hawking, in his book, The Grand Design, actually also says basically the same thing as his earlier book, A Brief History of Time, who's not a Christian, by the way. He wrote, the emergence of the complex structures capable of supporting intelligent observers seems to be very fragile. 
The laws of nature form a system that is extremely fine-tuned, and very little in physical law can be altered without destroying the possibility of the development of life as we know it. We're now for a series of startling coincidences in the precise details of physical law. It seems humans and similar life forms would never have come into being. Now, he's not saying God did it, because his explanation is, well, we live in a vast universe where almost all possibilities are actualized. We live in a multiverse where there's just this huge range. And obviously, only in these very rare instances will you have intelligent creatures reflecting on their existence. But they can only exist in those places. So the fact that we're asking the question means we have to be in one of the extraordinarily fine-tuned places within the multiverse. Well, he can do that, but that involves a lot of speculation on his part and M-theory and a variety of other things which, which are highly speculative within cosmology these days. But he points out that when you look at the laws of physics, the basic physical constants, they seem fine-tuned for the possibility of life. So it's not just that science doesn't exclude the possibility of miracles, but there's actually things within science itself that say, well, that makes very good sense from a Christian perspective. Now, I want to say a bit about science and specific point miracles. So is, is, is science excluding the possibility of specific point miracles or giving strong reason not to believe in them? My contention is that successful science suggests there are no order of nature miracles. However, it is silent with respect to the possibility of specific point miracles. You think about that. The reason is that God is the one who does miracles and God does them intentionally. So God could choose to create an order of nature where he doesn't need to do miracles to keep it going. But that doesn't mean that God won't do miracles for other purposes. In fact, going back to the engineer example, an engineer may make this machine which is self-adjusting, but he, something arises where he wants to do something different. So he makes a change in the machine so that, so that it does something different at a specific point. Well, if God has the capacity of being able to do miracles at specific points, his making an order, exquisitely ordered universe doesn't tell us that he's not going to do miracles at specific points. In fact, from our perspective, it would make good sense to do specific point miracles. So hardly does an absence of order of nature miracles imply that there are no specific point miracles. And scientific method typically cannot detect specific point miracles. So a key miracle for us as Christians is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. How would you go about investigating that scientifically? Well, you really can't. It's not something you go back and try to recreate, because you can't recreate miracles. There's no way of setting up the natural context and have it happen, because after all, there are exceptions to the laws of nature which God has instituted. Even if one were to find an ossuary, sort of a stone casket, that said Jesus of Nazareth written on it, and there were some bones in it. Well, what would that tell us? Well, somebody later on decided to write Jesus of Nazareth on a casket, and there's, there's somebody who got, got buried in it. That doesn't tell us that Jesus was there. So it's, it's really quite, I mean, you can't do the kind of investigation which scientists want to do to try to answer a question when it comes to specific point miracles. There are some objections. I want to address a couple of them. One, a person might say, well, if specific, if specific point miracles occur, wouldn't most people, including scientists, be aware of events which are plausible candidates for being exceptions to well-established laws. I mean, after all, again, if we were God, and we can do miracles at a specific point for specific purposes, we could think of lots of cases where I would want to do a miracle. 
so for instance, a person is dying of, uh, uh, has a very serious car accident, and they're bleeding to death. Well, I could miraculously stop the bleeding <laughs> and have the person spare the person's life. You know, just ignore the, the, the laws of physics and chemistry, and God's just a miracle to save a life. Well, why doesn't God do those kinds of things lots of times? And if he did it often, then even people who were skeptics and who weren't religious at all would say, well, there's a lot of cases that might possibly fit in that category. But the skeptic looks around, there aren't, he says, there aren't many cases that are all compelling to me. Uh, and if, in fact, God does them at all, surely you expect them to see a lot more than we see. So the fact we don't see a lot of them should tell us that they don't happen at all. All right, so my response to that is first, this would be so only if obvious miracles were common events. And by obvious, I mean even the most skeptics. So for instance, there's lots of events that I think is God is at work healing a person. There was a, a cancer surgeon at our church who about a year before I heard him, uh, had decided he was gonna pray with his patients. So doctors would send their patient and you have, a, you, have a, you have a meeting with the surgeon so that there's no mistake on who you are. You're not doing surgery on the wrong person or for the wrong thing. Uh, and after the examination, this is the doctor that decided he would he ask the person, do you mind if I pray for you? Now, some people say no, but most people say, sure, you can pray for me if you want. So he prayed for this woman that had a, had a, had a growth the size of a, of a lemon-sized tumor and they hadn't done a biopsy on it because they decided it needed to come out. So they said simply take it out. And so his prayer was either that when the biopsy, the, the, the tumor was taken out, it would show not to be malignant, or that when it came time for the surgery, it simply wouldn't be there. About a week later, this person came in for the surgery and they did the, the MRI, whatever sort of CAT scan they do to see what the condition is because the surgeon wants to know what things look like just before he's doing surgery and there was nothing there. Wow, God answered prayer. The skeptic is not going to be persuaded by that. A skeptic is going to say, well, sometimes the immune system can hit on the right combination to be able to attack a cancer in the period of a couple of weeks or even less, the whole cancer might be removed by the immune system. So, He's not going to be persuaded. Now, if in fact, when you pray to the person did him an arm, his arm appeared within a couple of minutes, you know, that would be a pretty obvious miracle. And people say, well, that's, 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 that's certainly strange. But God does not do things on a common basis where people look at it and say, well, that's clearly in conflict with the laws of physics as we know it. Now, that does raise the question why God doesn't do that more often. And that's part of the problem of evil and suffering. Well, why does God allow as much suffering as does, given that he could do obvious miracles to bring about healing in lots more cases than he does? But it's important to note that obvious miracles are not commonplace in the biblical record. I do believe that God does miracles, and I do believe that God does miracles today. But for whatever reason, it doesn't seem as though God does obvious miracles on a regular basis, obvious to skeptics. When you look through the biblical record, most miracles are related to particular individuals or specific times in biblical history. And you have these long period of times where there don't seem to be obvious miracles taking place. So being a Bible-based person in my own belief, I say, well, I can't assume that God's going to do obvious miracles now if I simply have enough faith. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case in the, the biblical record. And I do believe we should pray for each other. We should pray for healing, and God can heal, and God can do great things. 
But at the same time, it doesn't seem, biblically speaking, that obvious miracles according to the Bible are things which are happening all the time on a regular basis. A second objection is that science is able to investigate individual events. So science isn't just concerned with uh, overall processes. Science oftentimes wants to know why particular events happen. So that's part of the aim of science, try to understand why this event happened or why that event happened. And science is sometimes able to investigate individual events. And when it does so, sometimes the, the scientific investigation results in showing that this supposed event never happened. Or it happened, but here's a good scientific explanation for why it happened. So sometimes they'll say, we've investigated reports of miracles and see the track record of science being able to explain these things. The problem with that is that false, re false reports of miracles are expected, whether or not there are any actual miracles. So part of human nature is we like attention. If I tell a big story and I get attention, well, I'm inclined to tell a big story. So you get people who tell things that never really happen, or they see something and they interpret it in their own way, but that's not really what they saw. So we should expect there are gonna be false reports out there. So if you're investigating reports, you're gonna get some reports that are false. That's no big surprise. But many reports cannot be either confirmed or disconfirmed. In fact, I think most reports of miracles, you try to investigate it scientifically and you really don't come up with a clear answer. So if you have a column for not a miracle and uh, not solved, you'll have more checks in the not solved column than in the not a miracle column. But now suppose you do a scientific investigation on an actual miracle. What's going to happen? The scientific investigation is not going to tell you God did it. You can't see God doing it. From the standpoint of science, you have simply, well, that was a strange thing that happened. It was an anomaly. It happened. It seems that the evidence is that happened. But science doesn't tell us why it happened. So a scientific explanation we're leaving up to the science is simply going to be in the unresolved column. So you have these three columns of investigating reports of miracles, and you're not going to have anything in the miracle column because by the very nature of science, you're not going to have anything in the miracle column. <laughs> so what have you shown? By showing that science is able to investigate these miracles, you've shown very little, actually. Another objection is that Christians believe, and the Bible teaches, that God is continually at work in the world, orchestrating events, guiding people, etc. And I believe that is true. Doesn't the rarity of obvious specific point miracles count against this belief? So I know there's some Christians who are even sort of Orthodox Christians, they believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but they're very leery of sort of admitting any other miracles. So they don't want to admit miracles any more than they absolutely have to. So they have an aversion to admitting or believing in specific point miracles. But if you believe that God answers prayer, you have to go, how does God answer prayer? If you're praying and you have a thought about someone God wants you to see, okay, is God actually guiding you? I think he is. Now, my own view is that when I have thoughts, those thoughts are dependent upon neurons working. So if there's no neural activity, I don't think my soul is having thoughts and sometimes engages with my brain, sometimes not. I think all of my thoughts are engaged with my brain. That's my own sort of a, a, a view on that. But that means that if God gives me a thought when I'm praying to do something, God is somehow affecting my brain as well as my thought processes. I give an example, I have a, a, a friend He's a musician, and he'd done one album, this is the old vinyl age, and he was coming out with a second album, 
And there's a friend of his who is in professional and recording uh, enterprise, and he set up a professional recording studio and brought some musicians in to do some backup for it. So there's one opportunity. If things didn't go out well, uh, there was, it, was, it was scratched. So he, he was at about 2 a.m. the night before, he gets a phone call from a friend on the East Coast. And he says, I'm sorry to be calling you at 2 a.m. I know it's 2 a.m. Los Angeles time, uh, but uh, I've been just thinking about you for the last couple hours and feeling like I need to be praying for you about something. I don't know what it is. Is there something I should be praying for you about? So actually, yes, I have this recording tomorrow, which is a unique opportunity. It's the one opportunity. Pray that it goes well. Okay, what was going on there? Uh, somehow, God was giving this person these thoughts. Now, God was affecting the person's brain. Was God making neurons fire that wouldn't otherwise fire, giving them, giving them thought? Uh, God, I, I don't know. But I do believe that God was, in fact, working his brain, giving him these thoughts to be able to, uh, that he should, he should be praying for John Fisher, this friend of mine. So how, are, how does God work in the world? Uh, he can work through natural processes. God knows what's happening, is able to work through natural processes. And by the way, the world does not appear to be deterministic. It doesn't appear as though all the future is determined by the present. There's this flexibility within uh, the natural processes themselves. So God can be working through natural processes. God can be working through non-obvious miracles. So when this person had this thought about my friend the musician, it could be that God caught a thousand neurons to suddenly fire at the same time. It caught a cascade of thought, and he has this thought, ah, oh, I should be praying for my friend. Or it could be that God is making neurons fire, which are right at the borderline between firing and not firing. So when neurons are right at the electropotential where they might fire or might not, if you have some quantum events which go one direction rather than another direction, it could tip the balance and the neuron will fire. So it's called quantum indeterminacy. Quantum events actually don't have prior causes, according to most physicists. They just happen one way or the other. So God can make a neuron which is right at the threshold of fire, either firing or not firing. So God might be coordinating the firing of neurons in his brain, which cascade into a thought that he has. So God's able to work in a variety of ways. An objection to that response is that isn't intellectual cheating. You're saying God is not working in obvious ways, to my, the skeptic's point of view. But now you're saying God works in ways that can't be observed. Isn't that just intellectual cheating to say, can't see God work in any obvious way, so therefore he's working in non-obvious ways? And my response is, it's not intellectual cheating if one has reason to believe that God has been at work. So I have reason to believe that God was at work in this friend on the East Coast praying about my, my friend on the West Coast. How God did it, I don't know. But from a standpoint of science, God could do any of these things. And I don't know how he did it. God could have used a combination of things. But at the same time, it's not intellectual cheating to suppose that God was at work in ways that I can't observe when I have good reason to believe that God actually was at work. Now, what about rational belief in miracles? What does it take to reasonably believe that a miracle has happened? Uh, one, believing in, that God can and does work miracles does not imply that one should believe all reports of miracles. And sometimes I find Christians, because they believe God can work miraculously, believe anything they're told. If a person tells me something which, wow, that's really dramatic and that would be an exception to the laws of physics, I don't say it didn't happen, but no, neither do I automatically say, well, it did happen. So very, very interesting. Maybe that's what happened. 
So it's, maybe that's what happened. <clears throat> there was a book I was reading about God's working supernatural in the world today. And one of the stories they told was about a faith healer in Argentina. Uh, and what happened in this faith healer, that people would come in for these faith healing meetings, they would be touching the forehead, and they would faint. And then they'd be carried off to a prayer room. Well, they would, when they came to, lo and behold, the cavities that they had in their teeth were filled. So God was miraculously filling their teeth. Like, no, come on now. I believe that God could work miracles, but it all sounds suspicious to me that what's happened is that while the person is unconscious, you give them, you know, keep them out for a longer period of time, and this prayer room, you take them over, and then some dental work is done, and when they come to, ah, their teeth are pale. So sometimes Christians believe things they shouldn't believe. When the internet first came out, you get things coming on the internet, and a friend of mine was, ah, did you see about this? And I kind of, right, so if you, you go on these, you could look sort of what actually happens for these debunking sites. If I know that's not actually what happened, here's what actually happened. And my hope would be that Christians would be a little more skeptical about the internet. Just because you see something on the internet who, by a person who claims to be a Christian doesn't mean that it's true. I mean, it may be, it may not be. One has to take those kinds of things with a grain of salt. You can believe, I believe that God does work miracles, but nonetheless, there has to be a bar of evidence to sort of exclude the, the fake ones or the things which, which aren't true. One does need a high enough bar of evidence to exclude false reports. So one shouldn't just simply believe everything which one is told. And one can investigate actual miracle claims by asking, okay, what are the circumstances? Who said it? Uh, if a person tells me about some miracle that's taken place, and that's the only miracle story the person's told me, I'm actually much more likely to believe that person than if the person has told me four or five stories of things which seem to be exceptional to the laws of physics. Now, it may be that God has given this person sort of a gift of miracles, but at the same time, I recognize if a person telling a, a number of these stories, I'm just a little suspicious. <laughs> Have they succumbed to the temptation of sort of spinning the story because it's effective? You know, people listen to them. <laughs> so it's kind of a strange thing that actually I, I find it much more credible when a person tells one story rather than a whole, whole bunch of stories. And you look at it and ask, well, what, what am I quite sure is going on here? How do I, what are the possible explanations for it? You look, are there natural explanations for it that make sense? If there don't seem to be good candidates for that way, well, that makes that adds to the believability that God actually was actually at work at it. Coming back to the resurrection of Jesus, there's been some very good work on the historical case for the resurrection of Jesus. And the way in which this runs is you don't assume that the Bible is God's word and is authoritative and everything that's said there is true, but rather the methodology which some Christians have taken is they ask, let's ask what scholars agree upon. What are a set of facts that all scholars uh, agree upon? And now we'll try to account for that. It's kind of like in a murder case. You say, what are the facts that we know quite certain that these are the case? And then let's look at the different possibilities. And if most of the things you know to be a fact fit with one person, but not all of them, or even the one that's quite certain you know about and doesn't fit with this person, now that person can't be convicted, because after all, it doesn't fit with what I know to be the case. So the strategy is to look at this collection of facts and ask what kind of explanations can be given for it. And it turns out that when you try to find naturalistic explanations, just from the material world about these things, about, about the, re the resurrection of these facts, none of them work well. None of them seem to answer the questions. 
The only one that really addresses the facts, explain the facts well, is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So that's an example of historical investigation. But when you're making a historical investigation, one of the questions you also ask is, well, is the hypothesis under consideration plausible at all? So for instance, in a murder trial, one would say, well, there's this gremlin that was sitting on this person's shoulder and whispering these things in the person's ear, and that explains all the facts. And it might explain all the facts better than any other explanation. But that doesn't mean I'm going to believe there's a gremlin that was speaking in this person's ear. <laughs> I say, no, that's, that's off, off, off limits. Now, sometimes people say God is off, off limits. But nonetheless, there, there is true that one has to have the question of plausibility. So I, I, when I have the opportunity, I, I give one talk on the evidence for the resurrection. And I like it when I can do sort of back to back. One night, evidence of the resurrection. And the next talk I entitled, But Dead Men Don't Rise. So the person can say, okay, follow your argument with a resurrection of Jesus. And it's true, I don't have a good explanation for the facts. But nonetheless, your proposal, Jesus actually rose, but it can't be right. Because dead people, dead, dead people, stay dead. They don't come back to life again. So there has to be some other explanation. So the second talk basically has asked the philosophical question of what does it take to believe in a miracle? Because believing in a miracle is different than simply historical facts. Uh, the first time I gave this talk this summer, I person could give another example besides the resurrection of Jesus. And most of the miracles of the Bible are things which I don't think you could do the same kind of study and come out with a strong case that God did this miracle this, at, at this time. But there are cases where there's good, strong historical reasons that, that back up a miracle claim. So, for instance, consider uh, Paul and his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Saul was the name at that time. So he's going with several other Jews who are all very anti-Christian. They want to go to the synagogues in Damascus and get letter permission to go round up Christians, imprison them, or have them executed. So he's traveling with people who are rabidly anti-Christian, like Saul is rabidly anti-Christian. Well, before he gets to Damascus, there's this light and this, this sound. The people who are with him don't hear the voice. Saul, Paul, hears the voice, and Jesus speaks to him. He then goes in the city, and he was struck blind. He is led by the other people in the city, and he, he becomes a Christian, and his life has changed. Well, if you, were, if you were Paul or Saul, when you're telling your story, probably almost everywhere he went, he would say, this is how I, this is how I got turned around. I was very anti-Christian, and God appeared to me, and now I'm being used by him to proclaim his word. Well, if Paul is doing that, that's precisely the kind of thing these rabid anti-Christians would hear about. Because they would hear that Paul is saying that he was struck blind. They would say, well, he was never struck blind. <laughs> he went in the city just like all the rest of us. Or we saw a light and saw this noise. No, we didn't see a light and see this noise. So for Paul to include those pieces in the story, at best is just stupid. Because <laughs> after all, there are people who are with him who would find out he was saying it and be passing the word around, no, it's not true. And as that word got passed around, it undercut his effectiveness as a, as a preacher. So it seems to me that actually those public elements which are part of it give strong credence to the idea that this actually happened, that Paul had this experience on the road to Damascus. Again, it doesn't sort of nail on the head that you can't give any, any possible explanation. But nonetheless, there's good reason to believe that God has worked miraculously. And note, if you believe that God has worked miraculously at one occasion, if there's any occasion where you're convinced that actually here we have an exception to the laws of physics brought by God, that should lower the bar considerably when you consider the next case. 
Because after all, now you know that God can and has done at least one miracle. Has he done a miracle in this case? You have uh, the, the bar. Now, people sometimes ask me, well, how high does the bar need to be? And sometimes uh, I, my, my response is that it's, it's, there's no objective way of saying how high that bar should be. It really is a matter of other things that come into play. If you think about other arguments for the existence of God and the reality of God, if you think it's quite plausible that God does exist, then that's going to affect how high the bar is. So there are a variety of things which come into play. Your own experiences come into play. So there's object, no objective way of saying how high the bar should be. But when a person says that, that no reported miracle has ever reached a high enough bar to warrant belief, so how do you know that? I mean, David Hume had an a essay entitled Of Miracles, where he actually mentions a couple cases where the whole bunch of people in the town saw this thing, this, this, this miracle which took place. Uh, and he argues that, no, you shouldn't believe it. Uh, the, the, he argues that intrinsically mir miracles should be incredible. So it has a very, very high bar. So there are lots of cases where significant people have recorded something and people have seen it who have no bias, seem neutral observers, and say that it took place. So a if a person says there's been no past event that has a high enough amount of evidence that warrants rational belief, so it sounds to me as though you're presuming it's not high enough because they don't take place. It's only if you believe miracles can't happen that you're going to place the bar above any, any, any amount of evidence you have for any actual report of a miracle. So you're actually arguing, you're, you're assuming your conclusion that miracles can't happen and you investigate it. So I encourage people when they're thinking about the Christian faith, look, ask the question, has God worked historically? Has God worked in the person of Jesus? Look at these kind of questions, and when you hear stories of people around you, take seriously that these, these things might be actually taking place. Investigate that, think about that. So uh, for a couple of concluding uh, comments. One, belief that successful science has squeezed rational belief in God is a mistake, which rests significantly on failing to distinguish order of nature miracles from specific point miracles. A gapless order of nature does not in any way imply that God does not do exceptions to, to the laws of physics at specific points as for specific purposes. Next, the question of the reasonableness of belief in any specific miracle has to be addressed via historical investigation. Science might in some way be able to come in, but it's not really going to be answered by scientific investigation. And faith in God and the Bible has always rested on claims about how God has acted in history and has spoken to the prophets. Questions? We have about 10 minutes before noon. If you need to leave a few minutes before, I'll probably I'll end, end at noon. If you need to head off to grab kids by, by noon, uh, you're welcome to do so, but questions that you might have. Yes? 